Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and right now I'm going through a series called These Seven Men Are Disrupting the Comic Book Industry. And the reason for that is because I just felt like talking about some image comics. That's that's pretty much what it came down to. It, there really was no higher agenda for it. That's just where the fanboy news took me, I suppose. Anyway, so uh, just to kind of clarify, though, because I'm not sure how I'm not sure how uh, clear I was about this in in the last episode, but. Uh, just in case you haven't figured it out, I don't intend to go through the initial offerings of all seven of the original image, uh, image founders. Number one, there's the question of just sheer length. You know, I'm going through four issues of the different series uh, that, that I'm going to be covering in, in in this series. Going through four issues of each title. So, do the math on that. What is 4 times 7? The answer is a shitload more episodes than I want to make. So, there's that to think about. Uh, the other thing, though, and this is maybe a little bit more of a prosaic explanation, but the other thing is, I got these comics. There's a lot of bullshit that, 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 that goes into this, but the long and the short of it is, guys, I'm all digital these days, and... That's fine for some things, but if what you want to do is talk about the initial offerings of Image Comics, we'll say basically anything that, that was released with an issue number one in 1992 or 1993, if that's your agenda, you really don't have very much to choose from on Comixology because a lot of that stuff, believe it or not, has not been released in digital format yet. and. There, honestly, I would imagine there's got to be like a ton of reasons for that, none of which really interest me. The long and the short of it is, I don't want to talk about uh, the initial offerings of all seven image founders just because, wow, that's just, that's a lot to talk about. And number two, even if I wanted to, it still wouldn't matter because, like I say, a lot of that shit is just not available on Comixology. So, what does one do? Well, what I decided to do is basically talk about the offerings that at least are available on Comixology, and eh, I hope that covers it. So, so there's that. Now, the why for all of this is, you know, why am I... Ooh, and there's my heater. My heater just kicked on, and honestly, I don't really much feel like turning it off, so you may hear this noise in the background from time to time. And if you do, well, just keep in mind, guys, it's really fucking cold right now. So I've got a little heater in my room, and when the temperature drops below a certain level, it'll automatically kick on and warm me up. So anyway, now, like I say, why am I talking about Image Comics? Uh, uh, guys, the maybe the easiest way to say it is I'm... Honestly, I'm just kind of fed up with the modern-day comics industry. This is an industry that has made it very apparent to me they are not interested in my business, and in fact, actively don't want it. Okay? 
I, I guess as an example, or perhaps as evidence, how many times have you ever seen, whether it's on Twitter or Newsarama or just fucking wherever, how many times have you seen a comics pro say words to the effect of either I don't want your money or this, meaning the comic book that you are critiquing, this is not for you. How many times have you seen a, a comics pro say that? If we're being completely fucking honest with ourselves, the only intellectually honest answer that you can give to that is far too fucking many. But you look back at the old stuff, none of which had an agenda, none of which had uh, uh, too much uh, too much politics injected into it, none of which was was created by people who were capable of saying, I don't want your business. And I can't help thinking, you know what? That's the kind of stuff that I want to patronize right now. Uh, so anyway, there you go. Uh, honestly, there, there's, a, there's probably a lot more that I, that I could say, but I guess maybe the long and the short of it is hashtags comicsgate. So anyhow... Today's episode, just because I seem to really be beating around the bush here, today's episode, this is Wildcats number two. <clears throat> Cover date is September of 1992. Publisher is Wildstorm Productions. Executive editor is Jim Lee. Cover artists are Jim Lee and Scott Williams. Writers are Brandon Choi and Jim Lee. Penciler is Jim Lee. Inkers are Scott Williams, Carl Allstater, and John Tige. I guess that's how you pronounce this guy's name. T-I-G-H-E. Tige. So, I don't know. Colorists are Joe Chiato and Digital Chameleon. Letterer is Michael Heisler. And editor is Ruth Grice. Story is entitled Revelations. Story synopsis is as follows. It is August the 9th, 1992, in McLean, Virginia, after the explosion at George, uh, Georgetown from issue number one, Void teleports all of the Wildcats away from the battle scene. However, a PSYOP named John Tyrell at International Operations intercepts her warp signal, and the, gr the, the group is temporarily piggybacked to the I.O. facility. They flash briefly in front of director John Lynch and his assistant, Allison Turner, before teleporting again onto the team's aircraft, M-I-R-V, so MIRV, I guess. The energy uh, feedback kills the PSYOP Tyrell. Lynch wants retribution and has the MIRV tracked. He sends out a team of Black Razors to, to follow the Wildcats. The Wildcats themselves go to one of Grifter's safe, ho uh, safe houses located in Quantico. From there, they explain that the reason that they picked up Voodoo in the strip club is not because they were, you know, it's nighttime and they're looking for some action, but no, it's because she's one of the few, maybe the only one, who can recognize uh, demonites in their natural form. And furthermore, she's the only one who has the power to exercise them from their human hosts. Grifter and Zealot know that the Cabal wishes to complete Project Reunification, which is to say a scheme that will erect a permanent dimensional gateway between Earth and Demon. A Demonite spy has infiltrated the United States government and has been working for four years to bring Project Reunification to fruition. While watching the news reports, 
Voodoo recognizes Vice President Dan Quayle as the demonite spy. Meanwhile, Hellspot and Pike meet with the demonite McCoy in Norfolk, Virginia. They're waiting for Belial, the erstwhile Vice President Dan Quayle, to provide them with an orb that shall become the catalyst for Project Reunification. I'm going to put the synopsis on pause here for a minute, guys, and say, you know how most comic books or comic book movies or just whatever, they have the mystical glowy thing that they're trying to save or they're trying to rescue or they're trying to destroy or just whatever? Well, this orb, this is the, the glowy MacGuffin that's basically propelling everything in, the, in these Wildcats issues. So, anywho, once the orb shell is breached, they, meaning the demonites, will be able to channel its energy to open the gateway. Meanwhile, back in Quantico, Black Razor 1, which is to say a team of covert stealth operatives, raid Grifter's safe house. The Wildcats snap into action and fight against the agents. At first, the Black Razors maintain the upper hand, that is, until Voodoo turns surprisingly feral and begins ripping into them. Marlowe blasts one, of, one Razor's kneecap off, while Grifter and Zealot trade sparring partners. As the dust begins to settle slightly, John Lynch enters the room. Io and the, and the Wildcats end up making a deal. Marlowe gives Lynch the name of the mole, and Lynch gives Marlowe the location of Project Reunification. Later that same day, Belial, again, Dan Quayle, delivers the orb to the reunification staging area at SDI Astronomics. Hellspont, Pike, and the Coda assassin Hestia are there to receive him. Him, meaning Belial. The Wildcats sneak into SDI and begin hunting for the orb. Their presence becomes known, however, and they fight up against the, the Cabal for the very first time. A security trigger is breached, sending out a signal to America's elite special service team, Youngblood. Youngblood arrives determined to protect the life of the man they believe to be the vice president. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, guys, as, as I said in my last episode about Wildcats number one, basically you could think of the entire Wildcats concept as sort of the, it's sort of like G.I. Joe in spandex. And so by virtue of that, this concept just kind of easily lends itself to lots of action and there's going to be lots of fights and explosions and narrow escapes and basically everything that plays right into Jim Lee's wheelhouse as uh, as an illustrator. Basically, these Wildcats issues, at least those drawn by Jim Lee, these are pretty much Jim Lee in his element. You know, this is the kind of stuff that he likes drawing. And so, as is perhaps in keeping with what Image was in, first intended to be, Look, comics are a visual medium, and so the Image founders, love them or hate them, decided that their comics, love them or hate them, should really play up the fact that comic books are a visual medium. That's not to say that the writing is unimportant, you shouldn't care about it, shouldn't worry about it, or anything like that. It's just saying that, just from a practical standpoint, the art is ultimately what's driving everything. 
And so that is very much the philosophy of image in its founding. And I find it kind of telling that the image founders were so successful in what they attempted to do that the comics industry, in pretty short order, stopped promoting and advertising artists. Uh, these days, it's all about who's writing this title or who's writing that title. And so I'm not saying that that's the reason for the decline of the comics industry. I don't think that helps. I mean, the crash of 1993, it is what it is. But at the same time, there is a very strong argument that the crash of 1993 that's just the market correcting itself. And so what we see starting in 1995 and going forward is perhaps the, the true value, for lack of a better way of putting it, the true value of the comic book industry. And yet the numbers kept dwindling. And I can't help thinking that really no small part of that is the fact that comics being a visual medium, why are we not talking about the visuals? Well, the reason why is because Marvel and to some degree or another DC, they don't want another image exodus, all right? They don't want to put themselves in that kind of position ever again, where basically seven guys have the ability, or however many, seven guys though, have the ability to go out there and completely disrupt the comics industry. That's what they don't want. And so I, that is, look, you guys can all believe anything that you want to believe. I think this is the real reason why the comics industry rarely, if ever, advertises artists or promotes artists. Hey, so-and-so was drawing this comic and it's going to be fucking amazing. You know, they really don't do that anymore. Yeah, you got a lot of legacy, like big name artists, like, John Romita Jr. coming onto your comic book, that's a big deal. Or uh, Michael Turner, rest in peace, but still, back, you know, Michael Turner, when when he was drawing comics, it's a big deal that, that he comes onto your comic and draws it. Or uh, uh, Darwin Cook, again, rest in peace. Or just whoever, you know. There are still superstar artists out there virtually all of whom made their bones either during the 90s or before the 90s. You're hard-pressed to find very many big-shot artists these days that made their bones anytime after the 90s. I mean, yeah, I guess there are a couple. I mean, technically, Frank Quitely, I think, made, uh, made his big splash during the 2000s, but he really is the exception that proves the rule. And I Again, I mean, I'm not trying to beat this to death, but I refuse to think that's an accident. The comics industry, which is to say Marvel and DC, they don't want this to ever happen again. So that's the real reason why you just don't see artists get the same kind of hype these days that they used to get back in the old days. So that's what I think. So, and if you have other information, feel free to send it to me. But until such time as you send it, I'm going to assume I'm right. All of this, I should say, is is a very long way of getting into the, the cover of Wildcats number two. And as with Wildcats number one, well, actually, you know what? 
I, I was about to say this is actually the, the cover of issue number two is actually kind of similar to, to issue number one in as much as this never literally happens in in the issue. It's just sort of a glory shot of the team and there's really nothing more to it than that. Except that's not that's not really true. Uh, this is it's basically it's Void. She's uh, doing this big dramatic arm spread kind of pose while the team members are uh, they're, they're sort of flanking her and they're just sort of floating around her in midair and there's this kind of purple sort of Kirby crackle speed line looking thing going on and I was about to well I can't say look you in the eye but whatever look you in the eye so to speak and say yeah but nothing like this ever really happens in the issue except that's not true that is not true uh, this is I'm not sure how accurate these page numbers actually are but according to Comixology this is page five which, by the way, includes the cover, the inside cover that lists off the credits, and then what I know to be page one, you know, lists all of those as individual pages by themselves. So this is page five, according to Comixology. You can actually see kind of a variation on the cover, and it's a very similar image, and it's basically Void. Well, she's basically teleporting the team from the explosion in, in the, strip, the strip club back to Merv, and so that's what we're seeing right here on Comixology's page five. And like I say, it's very similar to the cover in most ways. So yeah, this is actually, this, depending on how literally you want to interpret this, yeah, this really literally does happen in, in this issue. So, huh. Sometimes I educate even myself, it seems. By the way, uh, guys, I'm as I've gone through these issues, I've done so on the presumption that this is the original art, more or less. This is the original coloring, more or less. And I do think that's true for the interior pages, but I look at this cover, and I'm not really sure that this isn't a recolored cover, because this something about this cover, it just seems very modern to me, very Photoshoppy, And I don't, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But I would be very surprised if at least the cover hasn't been recolored, but the rest of this, I'm pretty sure, like, we'll say 95% sure that the actual pages of this comic are the original coloring job, so I don't know. I guess we'll see. Uh, somebody out there probably knows more about it than I do. So, yeah, anyway, moving right along, basically pages three through five, this is sort of a replay of a handful of panels, really, from issue number one. Um, and I, honestly, I mean, it's nothing you, you really couldn't have guessed. I kind of touched upon it in the uh, synopsis, but this basically gives a little bit more of a clearer view of what's happening in IO headquarters at the time that the strip club explosion happens and then Void teleports the team out of there. Because we briefly saw uh, Void appear in IO headquarters in issue number one, but we didn't really know what was going on. We didn't even have context for what that was all about. And so here we get more context for what that was all about. Now, in the last episode, I said that somebody who was reading uh, Wildcats number one for the very first time when it came out, 
They might have reason to perhaps question Void's loyalties, like why would she randomly appear in IO headquarters and then instantly vanish? And here we get the explanation for why that is. And honestly, it's nothing to do with her loyalties. It was basically one PSYOP interfering with another PSYOP. And so there was a point when things almost got completely fucked up. And so... Yeah, nothing more to it than that. Basically, I.O. saw something that they weren't meant to see, but then that's basically that. So, anyway, I've been real... God, it feels like I only just started recording. Wow, I'm way... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm closing in on the 20-minute uh, mark here, or beyond the 20-minute mark, and... Wow, feels like I only just started. So, yeah, I'm going to get a sip off of my orange vanilla Coke, just a sec. So, is Orange Vanilla Coke the official beverage now of Trinus Magnus Punch's reality? It seems like every time I record an episode, well, maybe not every time, but most of the time when I record an episode, I've got a can of this handy, so I don't know. And, uh, yeah, time for some vapor, too. Uno más. <clears throat> All right. So, uh, Comixologies, uh, this is uh, page seven. This is another one of those uh, horizontal, like, two-page spreads. Not a splash. It's a spread. Where the panels stretch across both pages, and you're supposed to read it read this thing horizontally. And as I said in the last in the last episode, these are just a fucking pain in the balls to do with Comixology because my iPad wants to reorient the uh, the image, but it's it's already reoriented, so when I flip my i my uh, iPad uh, horizontal, it reorients or I guess it re-reorients the the page and so it's like no matter what i do it's always going to be sideways now yes some of you wrote in and you said well you know you can turn off your screen reorientation magnus i mean now you you do know that right it's like yes i know that but there's sort of a broader principle that i'm speaking to here where it would be kind of nice if the uh, the uh, comicsology app had some kind of way of reorienting, uh, of allowing me to reorient a page man uh, manually, instead of me having to fuck with my iPad itself, turn off that functionality across the entire thing, why not allow me to control something like that within the app? So, anyway, it's just kind of annoying, and yes, like I say, I know I can do this, I, I can control this using my iPad, the issue is I should be able to control it from within the app, so... Whatever. So, anyway, moving right along, though, like I said, according to Comixology, this is page seven. And, yes, this is a two-page spread. Yes, these can be kind of ignore, uh, uh, annoying for all of the reasons that I've just said. But having said all of that, 
I must say, this is actually a really well done page. <clears throat> the the <clears throat> the ensemble nature of any team book, really, but especially one like Wildcats, you've got a lot of characters on any given page at any given moment. And so right here, this is on, again, page seven, panel one. This is, it's basically sort of a, a re-reintroduction to the team. I mean, yeah, we got that glimpse of them whenever they were in Void's teleportation uh, void, I guess, uh, a few pages earlier. But here, we it, just in case this is your first issue, which it may very well, it, it might very well have been because, you know, in 1992, Wildcats number one sold out PDQ, so who's to say? You know, you actually get to, you get to see the characters, they're interacting with each other, you get a little bit of an idea of who they are or perhaps how their powers work, etc., what their relationships are with one another, particularly, um, <clears throat> excuse me, particularly uh, a, a Grifter and Zealot, what exactly their, their relationship is with each other, and or, or at the very least, that there is a relationship. And apart from all that, it's just a really cool looking panel. So anyway, I dig it. Just from, I guess, well, I can't say from the top, but I guess relatively early on, let me say that Jim Lee definitely knew what he was up to with with this series, especially the first several issues of this series. And I think he delivers the goods on just about every page. He 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 delivers the goods. I I just like the fact that well, I, I, again, not necessarily every page, but almost every page. It's virtually a visual feast, and I just just really like it. So anyway, uh, moving right along, uh, getting into a page nine, we see sort of the aftermath of the IO psyop accidentally intercepting uh, accidentally intercepting Void's teleportation beam, and basically the process of doing that killed him, and so. You can you can just see it right here. The lab is basically covered in blood. <clears throat> I guess we can infer that this guy's head basically exploded from some kind of I don't know psychic overcharge or something. I don't know. It's just again, this is just this is one of those things that was sort of a calling card for image. These were very much not even NC-17 comics. These are just unrated. Just full stop. Unrated. And so there's content, at times more graphic content, in Image Comics than you might see perhaps in Marvel Comics, for example, right? And so you can just see that this lab is basically covered in blood following what I imagine is the grisly death of the IO PSYOP. And... This is just stuff that you wouldn't necessarily see with Marvel or DC comics, but was pretty common, I should say, especially in the early going uh, goings of Image. And this is, it's just, it's a reminder that this is basically action-packed comics cranked up to 11. You know, in particular, I would say Wildcats. And... What I remember of Young Blood, yeah, I guess them too. But we're not talking about Young Blood, at least not yet. We're talking about Wildcats, and so basically, this is just a reminder that this this is 
something more. This is basically, like I say, comics filled with action, cranked up to 11, you know? And so, anyway, just really neat page, and I just kind of dig it. So, moving right along, we get a little bit of an explanation of what exactly the stakes of this of, of this story, really the series, but especially the story at hand. We start getting an idea of what the stakes are on, on this with comics, uh, Comixology's page 12. It's basically a... Honestly, some surprisingly succinct um, exposition from Zealot. She says, Eons ago, Carabim uh, explorers and demonite marauders were stranded on this planet, meaning Earth. Cut off from our home worlds, many of the Carabim, like Lord Imp and myself, assimilated into the human population. The demonites, however, merely saw Earth as a plentiful source for host bodies, a rich colony for their empire. During the, the ensuing blood wars between our two races, humanity suffered as Carabim and Demonite established a balance of power. Thirty years ago, however, we suffered a terrible defeat that upset the balance. Now the Demonites are ready to deliver the killing blow to both Carabim and mankind. And so, we now seek the gifted ones, the human Carabim, uh, the human Carabim hybrid descendants, such as yourself, Warblade, and Maul. Without your help, the Demonites will surely take this world as their own. And number one, this does a lot of things. Um, first off, it delivers uh, a lot of information, and I'll circle back to that in just a second. Number two, it's just, again, it's just a, it, it, it's a, a, a really a cool-looking page. Number three, I sort of harped on Jim Lee a tiny bit, in the last issue for stacking panels on the left on one of the pages. And here he stacks panels again, but right here on, on page 13, as per comiXology, he stacks panels again, but this time he stacks panels on the right. Now, in this case, it doesn't really matter that much if the panels are stacked to the uh, on the left or if they're stacked on the right, because these are sort of abstract, sort of flashbacky sort of panels. And so it doesn't really matter that much. They could have been stacked to the left and it wouldn't matter. But normally, stacking panels on the left is a major league no-no. You're not supposed to do that. And the reason you're not supposed to do that is because here in the West, we read things in a certain order. We read from the left to the right, and then from the top to the bottom. In that order. Left to right, top to bottom. Left to right, top to bottom. So how do you read a prose novel? Left to right, top to bottom. Left to right, top to bottom. How do you read a newspaper? Left to right, top to bottom. How do you read a comic book? Well, it's supposed to be left to right, top to bottom. But when artists stack panels to the right, what they want you to do is read top to bottom and then go left to right. And we, as a culture, we just don't really want to do that. We want to read left to right and then top to bottom. So, like I say, again... It doesn't really matter in this case because these aren't really panels that are imparting dialogue or information or anything like that. So anyway, now as to the information that gets imparted here, number one, this sets up the two warring factions. That is the Carabim and the Demonites. Number two, it establishes that humans, well, actually, before we even get into that, that they've been here a long time. The Carabim and the, daemon, uh, the uh, demonites, they've been here 
for a really long time. And number three, their war is between each other, and all too often, the human race has been caught in the crossfire. Now, the Karabim, they've somewhat interbred with humanity, and so there are some pure some purebred Karabim, but there are also some human Karabim hybrids running around. And that's sort of our gateway. Uh, the the Karabim, they, they, they sort of explain uh, Zealot's background and Jacob Marlowe's background. The hybrids, they explain uh, Voodoo's background and Warblade and Maul. But that still leaves a few characters where we're just not really too sure what's going on. What's the deal with Grifter? Well, these first two issues don't tell us. What's the deal with Spartan? These first two issues don't really tell us. And so I guess what I like about this is it... it Questions have been raised, and questions are now starting to get answered, but in so doing, new questions are getting raised. Now, the reason I'm being kind of a pain in the ass about this is because it's very common, almost a cliche at this point, for Image Comics, especially in the beginning, to kind of get a certain amount of grief for writing and characterization and pacing and plotting and... At times, even story, all of these things basically getting shortchanged as compared to the emphasis that gets put on the art. And look, guys, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. There are plenty of instances where the art does take precedence over everything else. But at the same time, I do think it's really inaccurate to say that story doesn't matter and that characters don't matter and that pacing doesn't matter with these image comics, because clearly they do. They're just not to the same level as might be expected with, say, a Marvel comic book, or I would say even more so a DC comic book, and almost certainly 90s, sort of mid-90s vintage uh, uh, Valiant comics, which were all about writing, at times to a fault one might say. So, anyways, all in all, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that the writing on these image comics, somehow, against all odds, it's actually underrated. Who'd have thunk? So, anyway. So, moving ahead here, we finally catch up with the bad guys. This is page 14. And we finally start checking in with them, finding out like what their next move is going to be. And honestly, they're I'm, the main villain, really, for story purposes, is Hellspont. And in some ways, it's kind of hard to think of a a, a character who's more of a 1990s supervillain stereotype, at least visually, than Hellspont. But it's like at the same time, it's like whatever's left of my inner 12-year-old remembers when supervillains that that looked like this was that was just the coolest fucking thing ever and i don't know i mean guys i i, I am a guy i've got the guy chromosome and i got to tell you i just fucking love these image comics and i just especially love hellspawn just just the aesthetic of it you know the uh, the gold uh, torso armor and then the blue f- 
fiery head and then the weird mask or whatever the fuck that thing is. It's just, this is just so cool. I mean, yes, I understand that eh, only in the 90s, but it's still, God, this is just so cool. And I just, I just love it. Love it, love it, love it. So anyway, so uh, getting into page 15 and sort of going forward from there, we get a sparring match with Warblade and Maul going up against Zealot, who I guess is now an official member of the team. And they're basically trying to integrate her into the team vis-a-vis combat training because this is supposed to supposed to be in a, a sort of action-adventure comic. And so they're not going to have a roll call where everybody democratically decides if she's on the team. No, she's on the team, and now they're going to train her starting with combat because that's the kind of comic book that this is. And anyway, so... And I just kind of like this. I mean, number one, like I say, there's got to be a certain action quotient that these that these issues hit. And so we've gotten a little bit in the first issue. But I do think it's fair to say that so far, Wildcats as a series has been primarily defined by cool layouts or cool-looking characters or, or just cool designs more so than out-and-out action. I mean, I'm not going to say that uh, the first issue was like a character-driven, overly talky think piece, because it definitely wasn't. But it's not as action-packed as some of the stuff that's coming. So that that much is sure. So one sort of miniature action sequence right here on page 15 gets interrupted, and then on page 16 becomes a real action sequence when uh, the Razors uh, ambush the Wildcats, and then uh, the fight's on. And... We get this, I don't know, is this a splash at this point? It's all in how you look at it, but it's either a spread or a splash on Comixology's page 17. The uh, the Wildcats, they're, they're duking it out with the Razors, and it's just, this is just pure. You could take the the captions and the dialogue balloons and all that stuff off of this page, and this would be, It'd be a, a, in terms of its shape, it would be a really fucked up looking, or a fake, uh, fucked up sort of shaped poster. But this would still be just a fucking awesome poster. Uh, this is just so well done, and I dig it. So, and honestly, just because of the fact that this is so action-oriented, it does sort of defy description, because again, this is a visual medium, and this is all being done visually, and so it's, I don't know, it's just, it's hard to, to, I don't know, to be rational about this, you know, because this really is uh, just high octane action adventure, fight sequence, action sequence, you know, it's just it's really good. But one of the things that I do think is kind of interesting is that uh, Grifter is holding one of his, it looks like this is a 45, he's got a 45 semi-automatic in his right hand, he's holding it over his left shoulder, and it looks like he's just firing blindly. And except for the fact that the Razors have superior armor, these would be kill shots that he's firing off blindly. And what I guess we're supposed to infer from that is that that's just how good he is. But one of the things that I really like about this entire sequence is, speaking of the 90s, I mean, it's it takes virtually no imagination whatsoever to just kind of picture uh, 
this sequence being directed as a as a movie directed by John Woo and you know the those just kind of almost like slow-mo porn sort of uh approach that he had to shooting certain ac- uh, action sequences and it's just it's not hard to envision that sort of thing at all and honestly when i when i read wildcats i i if it's going to help any of you sort of crack the code on this i've already called it gi joe and spandex but just imagine a gi joe movie basically gi joe in spandex movie directed by ni- uh, 90s era uh, john woo right and that is pretty much the way that that not necessarily all of Wildstorm's titles, but specifically, I would say, uh, Wildcats. This is, well, G.I. Joe in Spandex, directed by 1990s era John Woo. That's probably, that's probably the, the best way that I, at least, can, can think to say it. So, anyhow. So, as is so, so typical with superhero comics, these two... Basically, I guess you could call them the good guys. These two teams of good guys fight each other to a standstill. It's it's basically a standoff. Neither side can really win. But actually, I guess this is a Mexican standoff, too, because neither side can really win. But at the same time, neither side can really retreat either. So I don't know. Anyway, but they basically fight to a standoff. And what they end up uh, deciding is... Uh, uh, Marlo decides is, yeah, fuck it. I'm, I'm, I'm making the deal. So I'll give you the name of the, the spy inside of the United States government. And in exchange, you give me the location of project reunification. So they make the trade and then we get another action sequence. This is on Comixology's page 22. And then just going forward from there. And again, directed by John Woo. I mean, you can just imagine these sort of glory shots of people diving through the air and they're shooting off guns or energy blasts. They're flying around. And uh, Maul, you you see him running around. He's smashing into stuff. Uh, or for that matter, just smashing people into walls and flatten them, flattening them like pancakes. And geez, this is just so well done. And I mean, I realize it's kind of a snooty thing to say to look down one's nose at early 90s image comics and say that stuff is tawdry i prefer more high-minded sorts of literature and it's just it's okay guys for i'm trying not to say action comics because action comics has well there's a comic book out, out there called action comics but it's okay for comics to be about action it's okay for them to be about just how cool everything looks and just how how fun all this stuff is, you know, and and how I don't know. It's just it's OK for comics to be that, guys. You know, not everything needs to be a, a deep, thoughtful, textured, layered and nuanced think piece. It's OK for things to be a, just a big action fest directed by John Woo. You know, it, that's OK, you know. Anyway. Um, taking some more sips off of my Coke here, guys. And some more vapor while I'm at it. 
All right, so getting into page 24, this is basically Youngblood getting the drop on the Wildcats. And we're going to get more into Youngblood in the issues still to come. But guys, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I, my knowledge of Youngblood is actually pretty limited. I remember liking this comic, you know, for what it was. I mean, I liked it on the terms on which it was presented. But it's like at the same time, you know, I only ever uh, read just like a handful of issues. This was never like big priority comic book for me. So, you know, I'm somewhat more familiar with Wild uh, with Wildcats a little bit. You know, I mean, I've read more of those, but it's like, geez, I've retained virtually none of this. I have to keep a little track list of who's who. But, uh, you know, Youngblood, yeesh. I mean, I, it's just, uh, I, like I say, it's been forever since I read those comics, what few I ever did read. So, I don't know. All in all, though, I just seriously fucking dig this, this issue and really this series in general. This is, these are just fun, action-packed uh, comics. You know, they don't try to be anything more than what they are. Uh, there's no, uh, there is truly no pretense here whatsoever. This, these are just fun, action-packed comics. And, you know, that's really all there is to it. Now, one of the promises that I made from the episodes that I'm, that, that I'm releasing this year is I'm going to try doing more more feedback and just going through that because I really do have a backlog that I'm trying to work my way through. And it really is way past time for me to start getting caught up on that. But, uh, oops, jokes on me because I forgot to cover any feedback in my last episode, but in my defense, and hopefully you, you listeners didn't notice, but in my defense, I ended up having to record the episode about Wildcats number one in two separate chunks separated by 48 hours. My recording ended up getting interrupted. And so I just ended up having to put it on pause for, I'm not kidding, 48 hours. And so, you know, after that long, all you want to do is just finish it, finish it, finish it, you know? And so I was so focused on finishing that I completely forgot to go through any feedback before rolling credits on the episode. So my apologies on that. So, but anyway, to sort of uh, make up for it this time, I've got, this is an email. Uh, this was uh, dated November the 20th, 2014. So I'm really, I really am starting to finish off all of the emails that I received in 2014. And I'm really starting to move ahead now. This is kind of a big deal for me. So it may seem like no big deal to any of you, but I promise you, this is more important than you might think. And anyway, so this is dated, like I say, November the 20th, 2014. So uh, subject line says Emerald Dawn. And this was sent in by my old friend, Fanboyamus Prime. And Prime writes, Greetings, Magnus. Emerald Dawn. A new origin for Hal Jordan, and one that you have to wonder why Johns needed his own new origin to replace it. I'm going to put your email on pause here, Prime, and say... I generally agree with that. I mean, I don't understand why it was worth basically retconning Emerald Dawn out of existence. I mean, basically, well, I say that. Look, I don't want to crawl inside of Jeff Johns' head and try to explain his creative process because, 
Neither of us have ever met Jeff Johns, and so we have no way of knowing. But Prime, I'm gonna I'm gonna hazard a guess that a big part of the reason why Jeff Johns wanted to uh, delete Emerald Dawn out of continuity for the most part, it really comes down to the drunk driving thing. You know, I I can't help but think that if it wasn't for the drunk driving angle, what Johns would probably have done is tweak Emerald Dawn, maybe retcon a few new elements into it that weren't there originally, but which he can just sort of post facto graft on to Emerald Dawn and say, oh yeah, the black hand stuff was always there. You know, just the, you know, all this stuff about Blackest Night. It was always there. We just never heard about it until now, you know? And the, that's what I think. But honestly, it's the drunk driving thing. You know, I think Jeff Johns just does not want Hal to be guilty of DUI. And so honestly, if that's your objection to Emerald Dawn and you've got the power to define Hal Jordan's continuity, there's no saving Emerald Dawn. All right. Cause that is, that is central to Emerald Dawn. And so if that's the one element you object to, that's a pretty fucking big element, you know? And so again, I'm, I'm not trying to say that this is definitely why, but this is just call it speculation. All right. Speculation on my part. And I generally abide by it. Now, Having said all of that, I I actually kind of enjoy Secret Origin. I mean, is this the greatest Green Lantern story that anybody's ever read, or for that matter, written? You know what? Probably not. But at the same time, it is good for what it aspires to be. And if memory serves, Prime... I'm really too lazy to check on this, all right? So forgive me if I'm wrong, but I swear to think Green Lantern's Secret Origin was published after Infinite Crisis, and it's pretty clear that, well, Superman is not the only person, the only character that was affected by Infinite Crisis. You know, there were other ripples as well, and so you could say that Infinite Crisis created Secret Origins. I mean, uh, for for Green Lantern. So I mean, I don't know. It's uh, maybe that's kind of a weak sauce explanation, but uh, I don't know. It's it's fun to think about, if nothing else. Uh, just a second, Prime. I want to get another sip off my Coke. All right. So getting back into Prime's email, he uh, he goes on to say, nothing was broken in Emerald Dawn that needed replacing, but you know Johns needed to retcon in elements of his run because why not make the black hand disturbing and set up all all the themes of a run and yet somehow neither that or Emerald Dawn were used as the basis for the Green Lantern movie. I'm going to put your email back on pause and say, you know, Prime, I think I touched on some of this already. I think what this is really all about is the DUI thing. If it, If it wasn't that, you know, if it wasn't for that single element, Again, this is an opinion, but I truly believe that Johns probably would have retained Emerald Dawn in continuity, and then he would have just tweaked it, you know, retrofitted 
uh, a few new elements onto it, but basically kept, at the very least, the bones of Emerald Dawn. But I, I think it really is the drunk driving thing. I think that's the real reason. So, anyway, uh, Prime goes on to say, Oh, geez. As they had to use Parallax in that movie and can't actually build up to any of Hal's classic foes, which most of them become part of the Sinestro Corps in the comics, which would give them something to build to, which would require planning and forethought, which Warner Brothers lacked, especially at that point with their silver screen adaptations. I want to put your email back on pause and, uh, Prime and say, dude, to your mouth, uh, from your mouth to God's ear, dude. I mean, honestly, the... The thing about the Green Lantern film that kind of just pisses me off even now, it's it's fine if you don't, if you just watch it as a movie unto itself, you know, a, a story that's got a beginning, a middle and an end. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that this is the greatest movie ever or even the greatest comics movie ever, but it's not bad. Put it that way. It's, I, I would actually compare it in a lot of ways, quality wise, I would compare it to the 2003 Daredevil movie by Mark Mark Stephen Johnson. They're misfires, but I don't think they're horrendous. Unlike Daredevil, though, I kind of have problems with Green with the Green Lantern film. This was basically meant to be Warner Brothers Iron Man, basically the thing that would launch a, a, a shared universe on screen for DC characters. That's what that was really supposed to be for Warner Brothers and obviously fucking never happened. And it's like, okay, number one, the movie that you made just as a standalone piece isn't really all that great. Number two, as an ongoing Green Lantern franchise, this does too... It's like it aspires to too much, accomplishes too little, and leaves far too much out. So there's that. But it's like... Honestly, like, how would this have ever led to any kind of a shared universe? And the answer to that is, nobody fucking knows. So, anyway, I'm not trying to turn this into a rant about the Green Lantern movie, Prime, because I I suspect that's not your point, but there's a reason I've never talked about the Green Lantern film on my podcast. You guys can read anything you want into that. So, anyway, moving right along. Oh, God, I messed up. I meant Batman Forever, not Batman and Robin. I mean, is a mental mess, uh, a mental mess up to mistake the movie where Batman and Robin first team up and get together being Batman and Robin, given the one that is that is Batman and Robin, is really where Batgirl joins up with a pair. Actually, you know what? I'm going to half-ass defend that, Prime. I'm going to half-ass defend that. Basically, Batman Forever shows Dick Grayson, for his participation in the story, it shows Dick Grayson becoming Robin. Batman and Robin as a film basically tells the story of how Batman and Robin truly became a team, truly became a family. You know? That, because, I mean, they didn't really, they never had a chance to really work together in Batman Forever. And so, as a result, we never really, we we saw Batman basically accept the reality of having a partner, but we never really saw him develop a working relationship with that partner. And so I do think that is defensible, dramatic ground 
for Batman and Robin to cover. You know, I mean, it's, I don't know. It's just for me, I, that, that's an easy thing to justify. Now, what might Batman and Robin have led to? Like what might future, what might future movies have, have been like if they'd been made? And I mean, obviously we have no way of knowing that it's reasonable to think, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you and say that I don't know that Batgirl, not that this was your point prime, but whatever, I mean, we're talking about it. So I guess here we are. Um, I don't really think that Batgirl would have stuck around in the films, the Batman films for very long. I think she probably would have gotten her own solo movie in pretty short order. Directed by who? I couldn't tell you, but I think she probably would have gotten her own solo movie at some point. And I think also at some point, probably in the next uh, Schumacher Batman film, I think it's reasonable to think that Dick probably would have become Nightwing and gone off on his own. And one of the things that Schumacher has said time and again is he wanted his next movie to be darker. Well, he wasn't allowed to do that with Batman Forever because specifically his creative mandate was to create something lighter than what had come before. So, fine. But he wanted to go darker for his next Batman movie. Except, here again, his creative mandate for that movie was to go even lighter than Batman Forever. So, uh, following Batman and Robin, had a sequel been made, Schumacher has said that he would have campaigned for something a bit heavier, a bit grittier, and a bit darker. So, I mean, I don't know how that could have turned out. Uh, yeah, this is the guy that directed Batman and Robin, but it's also the guy that directed Lost Boys. So, I don't know. I mean, I'm honestly, I'm happy with the four movies that we've got. The two Burton movies and the two Schumacher movies. Actually, you know what, Prime? None of this is your point anyway, so I'm just going to move on. Getting back into Prime's email, he writes, And also, when the Nolan films were... Uh, we're on. We got Batman the Brave and the Bold. A show going as far away from the Nolan stuff as they could. Partly, I'm sure, so they could have something to sell kids, as the era of selling kids R-rated movie stuff had passed. Boo on that, as I'm a child of the era, they sold kids toys, cartoons, and such on those things. I assume that you're talking about Terminator 2 Judgment Day Prime? I, I mean, I'm Honestly, maybe I'm just being stupid here, but apart from Terminator 2, I can't really think of very many R-rated movies that had toy lines wherein the toy lines were directed to children. I Maybe I'm just blanking on it. I, I, I don't know, but T2 is the only one I can think of. So anyway, Prime goes on to say, but also because they wanted to make a different Batman show and have fun with a lot of characters or versions not seen in animated form at that point. With the tie-in comic of Batman, the Brave and the Bold being uh, awesome. Magnus, you need to review all new Batman, the Brave and the Bold issue number four. Which, yes, I have talked about before in my emails. Me talking about that and Dream War a lot are a bit surprising to even me, as I've been a Marvel fanboy for a long time. Guess I need to bring up my love of Marvel Zombies 3 more often. <laughs> oh, Prime. Prime, Prime, Prime. All right. Uh, tell you what, Prime, I'm going to do some research on Dream War. I'm going to find out what that was. And uh, I'm not going to promise you anything. But I'm going to look into it and we'll, we'll see. Okay? Does that sound all right? So anyway, Prime goes on to say in his email, he says, 
I mean, Marvel Zombies 3 was Machine Man and Jocasta in the Marvel Zombies universe between the first two books, and Aaron was funny, and yet you also see the hero he was before Next Wave altered him shining through. And I just read it because I wanted to see what Jocasta was up to before Dan Slott's Mighty Avengers run started, but just fell in love with it. Jeez, wow, so it's that good, huh? All right. Anyway, so Prime goes on to say, On the 66 Batman, it's been proven to be what saved Batman's ass from being canned. From what I've heard, Lois Lane's comic was outselling the Caped Crusader before the Adam West show. Not to say, even back then, that people were happy with the 66 Batman and that era of the Dark Knight. Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill wanted to get Batman back to what he was before the Silver Age and did their best... Um, did their best their, with their Brave and the Bold stint in the main Bat books afterward to restore Batman to what we see him as today. And Prime, I'm going to put this back on pause and say, you know what? At the time that you wrote this email back in 2014, I don't think that I would have understood the fullness of what you're saying here. I mean, yeah, everyone knows that it, it was really Denny O'Neill and to some degree or another... Neil Adams, who led the charge with taking Batman comics in a little bit more of a darker sort of direction. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's common knowledge. If you've been in this hobby for any amount of time, you know, everyone knows that. But it's like at the same time, you know, like the fullness of what you're saying is I think it would have been lost on me. Back in 2014, had I responded to this on Mike, I might have wanted to nuance that a little bit and say, well, you know, there was this thing and then there was that thing and then there was that other thing, you know. And no, I mean, honestly, it really does come down to Adams and O'Neill. I'm not saying that nobody else had a role to play because obviously they did. But really, all roads lead back to O'Neill and Adams, you know. And so, so there's that. The other thing, though, Prime, is... Something that I, that I, honestly, I did not fully appreciate until, I don't know, maybe this last summer, was that Batman, the animated series, it really is like a televised love letter to Batman in the Bronze Age. Now, that's not to say that, you know, riffs and references, or sometimes even stories, from the 80s and 90s couldn't be adapted into Batman the Animated Series? Because God knows, that that did happen. That did go on. But it's like at the same time, you're kind of doing Batman the Animated Service a, a little bit of a disservice if you don't mention just how fucking heavily influenced that was by Bronze Age Batman in general, I would say, but in particular, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams specifically, you know, like those two specifically, you really need to understand Bronze Age Batman to, I think, eh, properly contextualize, shall we say, Batman the Animated Series, because, you know, when I went through this, this almighty Batman Bronze Age reading project ages and ages ago, I was seeing things that, whether it was a story or whether it was a character, or even if it was just the tone and the style of a, a given Bronze Age issue. It's just like, 
This is so obviously something that you might have seen, or for that matter, did see on Batman the Animated Series. And when I started thinking about it, it's like, you know what? Uh, motherfucker, that actually makes that actually makes a lot of sense because you think about when Paul Dini and Bruce Timm would have been cutting their teeth on Batman comics. I mean, yeah, they would have seen the the Adam West show when they were growing up, you know, when they were like little kids. But really, as comics fans, I think they would have blossomed primarily in the early to mid-70s when Batman's Bronze Age was in full swing. And so as a result of that, it's not hard to see where Neil Adams, Jim Apero, Steve Englehart, Denny O'Neill, Marty Pasco, you know, all these other guys weren't planting seeds that ultimately became Batman the Animated Series. You know, you, you pretty much have to be blind in order to miss it. So anyway, I'm not saying that Batman the Animated Series is the only direction an adaptation of the Bronze Age can take or an adaptation influenced by the Bronze Age can take because obviously we've been talking about Nolan here or you were talking about Nolan a little bit here. And again, there's really no denying the Bronze Age influence on the Nolan... Uh, trilogy i would say most especially the dark knight you see it a little bit in batman begins but i think it's clearest in in the dark knight so there are different directions you can go in and uh batman the animated series i think is a very logical direction to go in so anyway i'm really rambling here so anyway prime goes uh, he finishes up by saying and i guess i told everyone what my hobbies are well, that was fun, and I'll keep on listening. Signed, Van Loyamus Prime. And Prime, thanks again for taking the time to write in. You know, I do think you're one of the more uh, prolific, uh, uh, I don't know, respondents, emailers, something. One of my, one of my more uh, busy, shall we say, uh, uh, feedback providers. I just want to let you know, I really appreciate that. I appreciate you taking the time to to write in. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. Just appreciate you sharing your perspective on these things. uh, It's always fun, and it it, it really means a lot. So, anyway, so next time, what I plan to talk about is it's going to be Wildcats uh, number three. Basically going to continue the story, and honestly, pretty much it's going to be that simple. So, I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So, Bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. 
There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon. Because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void were prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus... Media Enterprises Limited Production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Magnus here. Here at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I sometimes release episodes all about Smallville. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville. In my opinion, Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. 
Magnus Talks About Smallville is dedicated to the themes, story arcs, and character motivations of Smallville. I do a ton of in-depth analysis on each episode of the show, and people seem to love listening to me talk about Smallville. And I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, and listen for yourself about why Smallville is awesome. Magnus Talks About Smallville, only at 2TrueFreaks.com.